no fear whatsoever. Just draws a story about a spider goat. And I think that's wonderful. When do we stop drawing spider goat stories? You're listening to The Occupational Philosophers with Simon Banks and John Rice. Hey, hey, welcome to The Occupational Philosophers. But before we go any further, what are you going to get out of today's show? Well, we're going to look at the one thing that kills your creative potential, whether that's at work, at home or in the bath. Building on that, we're going to develop some tactics, importantly, on how to deal with it. And then we're going to learn some key ways to have a little less of this creativity killer at work. You know, that doesn't make you look like a free-loving, sandal-wearing hipster that says stuff like, hey, let's get in the flow, don't hold back, release your ideas and let's play with them. Hey, Simon. Hi, John. It's our very first episode of The Occupational Philosophers and it's very exciting. Yes, I'm feeling the vibes, John. And look, I'm excited to be knowing that you'll be joining us every two weeks where we'll help you realise your untapped potential as a curious, creative and imaginative star that you are or would like to be. And it's not just going to be the two of us. We'll be chatting to other people as well who have taken the path less travelled, who have stories that will inspire you to be more fearless, break out of those non-creative weeds and see things in a very unique way. But look, let's kick this show off, hey? Hey, Simon, one of the other questions that I'm getting as I start to let people know that uh, we're doing a new podcast is people say, who's your co-host? Yeah, I'm getting asked that all the time. So I think we need to put in a little section just to deal with that up front. This little section is called Get to Know Your Host, but we're going to do it in a fast and furious manner. So I have some questions for you, John, just to find a little bit more about who you are. What part of the world do you live in? Well, Simon, I live in a little place called Shoreham-by-Sea, which is just along from Brighton on the south coast of England. Now, what's one interesting thing about your town that we might not know? Well, as you might imagine, there's lots of interesting things about Sean by Sea, but my favourite is the fact that Charles II, when he was escaping the parliamentarians and the roundheads or whatever, he made his escape all the way through England and he ended up departing to France from Sean by Sea. So he left this very beach just around the corner from me to get away. Well, that's nice work, and I, I like Isn't that. It? Yeah. What's, what's your day job? <laughs> My day job, well, I probably class myself as an occupational philosopher. I get curious with leaders, teams, organisations who are trying to achieve something, trying to change the way they do stuff. And it's just about getting curious with them and helping them get there. All right. I like that little description. Now, that is your day job. What's your first ever job? Gosh. So I would probably class it as working at 7-Eleven, which was meant to be serving customers and baking bread but was mainly me hiding in the back, pretending I was baking bread and and reading magazines because I was a young teenager. So, you know, I was just hanging out the back trying to avoid doing work. But that was my first job. Whilst wearing a red jumpsuit, looking like the Bionic Man, for the age of people there who might remember the Bionic Man. (laughs) Now, if you're over 70, you might remember the Bionic Man. (laughs) If you're under that... (laughs) 
<laughs> go look it um, up. Go look it up. Um, look it up on the internet. <laughs> and the jumpsuit was your own choice, or you had a, an no. internal jumpsuit? Like <laughs> no, that was uniform. I didn't. I didn't decide to go. Hey, I'm going to go to work in a jumpsuit and just try and impress people. No, we had to wear red jumpsuits and like baseball caps as well. So uh, as I was going to work in the morning, I used to run across the park to get to the shop looking like the bionic man because I'd be running at speed because I was usually late. <laughs> but just to be clear, I'm keen to understand this. Like if I go into a 7-Eleven now, there's someone like in, say, trousers and a short sleeve shirt. You had a, a zip jumpsuit where you would like climb in and be like you're a spaceman or something. That, that, that's exactly it and that's what made it exciting as a first job i felt like a spaceman even though i was stacking shelves <laughs> what's the one thing that people don't know about you apart from your jumpsuit problem well that would probably be that i was on reality tv once so in what would probably be classed as the early days of that sort of whole rush of reality tv programs i took part in something called the block and i can see you're smiling simon because you put me up to it i always say in that you sort of said hey john you want to look at this thing called the block which was massive down in australia and so they they tried to replicate it here in the uk and myself and my partner now wife leslie we we had to do up a house along with three other couples over the course of three months, I was still trying to work at the time. And we work every hour God sends to do this house up whilst getting judged by Simon Cowell's brother, Nicholas Cowell. And we kind of won in some strange way, but that's for another day. <laughs> and what I, if you live in Australia, the block is still huge. I have like 10 different versions of this show every year, but and never quite caught on in England. What I did like is you and Leslie are on the sides of buses in like yellow overalls and different things. <laughs> like you're out of I the window. I think it might have been a jumpsuit again. I think they seem to be following me. <laughs> and you would occasionally, when we're out, get recognized in the pub and someone would go, You should have won that, or your your bathroom was the best. Oh. We were there, man. We were at the heart of the population. That was it. They took us to their bosom. <laughs> well, that's the end of getting to know John. <laughs> Thank you very much. How about you then, Simon? Let's find out a bit more about you. So same questions, really. So Fast and Furious, uh, where do you live? I live in a little town called Terrigal, which is just north of Sydney by the beach. And what's that famous for? Well, this is just my own observation. I think we have the highest population of dogs to people in Australia. <laughs> is that that's observation rather than some data you've got hold of? That's just observation, anecdotal observation. Uh, what's, uh, what's your day job? I'm a keynote speaker and author on creativity and innovation and a recovering artist. What about your first job? What did you do? Well, it's quite entrepreneurial, which has maybe continued on to this day. And I had a car washing round I created. And that's pretty much how it went. I'll go wash people's cars and they'll give me some money and boom, boom. Was that successful? Relatively successful. I had some pricing problems at the beginning with pay, you know, like those restaurants where you, you know, pay what you want. And <laughs> Some people go, oh, I didn't pay anything. It was great. There are a few people that were a bit like that with the car occasionally. So I set some floor 
ratings for pricing, but that was good. That was good. <laughs> uh, what about something we might not know about you? Well, I lived in the UK for a long time. When I was in London, I appeared in a production of Cabaret that ran for two weeks at the Richmond Theatre. I have to ask, which character did you play? I was German in bar number three, and I had, I had one line, and my line was, Fritz. <laughs> As in a name, name or an order for yeah. chips? Yeah, no, yeah. <laughs> Fritz, por favor. I, no, I, I had one line and I was in pretty much all the scenes as a background person in the bar or and yeah, sung in the chorus, but I had one line. And then on the last night, I um, threw in my own line. I put in a couple of other ones because <laughs> I didn't have any. And um, You ad-libbed. Yeah, because what it was, the uh, one of the ladies was a prostitute or something along those lines, which is pretty much half the story. And she goes to me, ah, oh, what's your name? And my line was like she was laughing because she'd forgotten it. She sort of slept with so many people and I had to go, Fritz. And on the last night I said, Fritz, but I don't care. If you don't remember, you weren't that good anyway. And I put that in. <laughs> I thought, I'm not just getting one line in this show. Uh, <laughs> did that Did that uh, get you chucked out or did it lead to some more acting roles? <laughs> I left it then and there in live theatre, but the audience liked it and she liked it as well. So <laughs> I love that. So, John, The Occupational Philosopher is the name of our show. I'll give you credit. You came up with this, and I really like it. Thank you. So a little bit of extra credit there. What's the thoughts behind it? It's a very good question, Simon. Questions are what this show is very much about. So the idea came from a fevered dream or a notion that there are many fields that exist which are associated with helping people in their place of work. So we have occupational therapists for example who look at health and well-being and we have occupational psychologists who are interested in people's behavior and their mindset so it just struck me that helping people to be more curious and creative and imaginative in their work and beyond might be the perfect role for an occupational philosopher we want to explore some themes that i think throughout this podcast series simon We've got curiosity, we know is one of the key themes, and the other ones that ride along that are creativity and imagination, but you could probably throw a whole load more things in there like play and learning, but um, fun. And, fun. and fun. Yeah, hopefully we'll have some of that along the way as well. So these are big themes, some of these, and, and of course we can apply it in different parts of our lives, can't we? I mean, this could be just applying it to wanting to start a new hobby where you want to start painting or you want to get a bit more creative in your own life. But, of course, we can go much wider than that. And I think when I talk about this stuff during my day job, it's when you're creative at home and let's call creativity connecting the dots in different ways because there's so many different ways to be creative. So when you're connecting the dots in different ways, whether that's through an activity or thinking or what you do with your kids or the way you think about your day or the way you might have your week unfold, whatever that may be, all of that stuff, when you 
pour water on the garden of your mind for a more for a philosophical statement. All of that stuff is absolutely transferable to the world of work and it's absolutely transferable to the wider world. And, you know, we can't sort of ignore the, the elephant in the room, which has been the last six months of, you know, crazy time. And there's some really big questions that need to be asked. And, you know, our creativity, our curiosity, our imagination and our ability to philosophize and think differently, they're going to be at the heart of the new world which we move forward and thrive in. Every year in Sydney they have the Festival of Dangerous Ideas and I think something like that is, you know, it's at the heart of uh, these philosophical questions and being more curious as well and asking those more provocative questions which will make us think differently. And I guess what we've What's seen... It's just saying, Simon, dangerous ideas? I mean, is that is that just saying radical ideas or are they genuinely dangerous? No, they're not <laughs> sort of like, like, yeah. dangerous. Uh, I'm going to mix a thousand Mentos with a litre of Coke and see what happens, you know, in a small room. Yeah, Put it, some yeah. firecrackers in. Not like dangerous ideas, but just those more provocative ideas like what if or why not or why do we need to or what would the world look like if we did this it's interesting actually that that idea of dangerous you know what they mean is radical but it's interesting that they frame it as dangerous i do i know why it sounds great doesn't it It sounds very exciting dangerous ideas but that does go a little bit to the heart of it we will explore it is you know why perhaps sometimes people aren't curious or creative or imaginative is because it will be seen as dangerous, as radical. You know, people may go, whoa, wait a minute, that's too much. And again, as we talk about chin strokers of history, sometimes they were considered to be dangerous because they were asking questions that people didn't want to discuss. So it's uh, it's really interesting that uh, that's part of the fear. People feel it's a bit too out there. It's a bit too dangerous to consider. I think also this notion of asking things which make us feel a little bit uncomfortable as well because mm-hmm. as we get older, we, we love our comfort zones, don't we? And look, there's nothing wrong with a comfort zone because when you come home, you've had a really long day, it's 9 o'clock at night, you've been up since 5 a.m., you've caught the train up to London or I've been in Sydney or, you know, caught the express back from Brisbane, which you do in Australia with these travels. You don't want to come home and do something uh, I say dangerous. <laughs> Come home, yeah. do something. Oh, I'm going to be more curious. I want to sit down on your ass, watch a bit of TV with a beer or whatever. So, this comfort zones are great, but we need to be comfortable with being uncomfortable, if that makes uh-huh. sense. But I think our mental comfort zone as well. Like, we often talk around those comfort zones with, like, literally the, the blindfolded trust falls and you feel great. But I think part of being a great philosopher is you step outside your mental comfort zone into Mm. that space where you know you don't have all the answers, but that's okay because you want to ask big questions. And I'm doing a talk next week on leadership, being interviewed by my old university around uh, leadership. And that's one one of those those essential skills for leaders in the future. And I think it's that ability to say, I don't know all the answers, but I'm really keen to find out and be more curious and have that maybe occupational philosopher's mindset. So look, there's a lot we're going to explore in this, but at the heart of it, John, and I think which, you know, fire us both up and why we wanted to do this podcast is how to bring more creativity 
which is connecting the dots in different ways, how to bring more imagination, so how to set your brain on fire and, you know, think of things that don't exist and how to be curious. And for me, that's just, just opening your eyes a little bit more because there's so much amazing things going on in the world around us. And these senses or these skills, they're free. We don't have to pay for them. We're born with them. I think at the end of this podcast, which will have a very long life, nothing would be better if we could say there's a, now an occupational philosopher in every organisation and maybe seated in a place of uh, high traffic when high traffic starts again, maybe like the you know, photocopy space or the lunchroom and people can just go up to them, maybe a bit like Father Christmas and ask a question. A chief occupational philosopher, a COP, that's what you need in every business. That's it. Yeah, a COP. I like it. I like it, John. And you think it won't happen, but who'd ever heard of social media manager 10 years ago or Bitcoin trader? These things can happen and I look forward to happening with us. Simon. You remember at the beginning of the show when we said we'd be speaking about the one thing that kills your creative potential at work, at home or in the bath? I sure do, John. And that's because all roads lead to the ogre. The ogre. What's an ogre, Simon? Well, I know what an ogre is, but what do you mean by an ogre? Well, look, when I talk about an ogre, it's that internal voice, that internal critic, that internal nag we have inside of us and always pipes up when we go to do something out of our comfort zone, something new, something different, a little bit left field, most importantly, it's ugly, grumpy, and not very nice. <laughs> Sounds like me in the morning before coffee. <laughs> Sounds like a lot of people I know. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, I when I hear ogre, the only thing I, that ever comes to mind is Shrek or something like that because the kids watch that a lot. But ogres, they have to be ugly. Yeah, do they have to be ugly, grumpy? What's the. When I draw one, I always draw something uh, ugly and angry, but I mm. think that voice also tries to pretend it's not there. So it could be like the soothing siren from one of the Greek mythologies that, you know, sing to you, but they entice yeah. you into, you know, not believe in your creativity or not do the things you could be doing. So. Mm. I would say, no, they don't have to be ugly or they maybe they don't even have to be grumpy at all. Yeah, it could be quite, as you say, it could be quite uh, good-looking and seductive, sat on your shoulder but telling you the things that are going to stop you doing things. And maybe they're so nice to you in some ways. You've got so used to them hanging around that you've forgotten that they're as badass as they are. <laughs> <laughs> Simon, I know now that we're going to talk about how to recognize and deal with your ogre, which is a massive part of you know being creative and staying creative. And I know you devote a whole chapter to this in your book, which, including from memory, has a story about a ping pong ball on crack, which is a phrase I've never heard in my life. And the funny thing with that is in my when I wrote it in the book, it seemed really funny. My editors really liked it. And then I was meeting with a new organization about kickstarting their culture of innovation, etc. And I jumped up and I with my pens and I said, Well, so the way I the way I deliver 
this innovation funnel, sort of like a, a ping pong ball on crack in a funnel <laughs> bouncing around. And they looked at me absolutely horrified. And that's when I realized that not everything translates well from the written humorous world into <laughs> a little bit more straight and narrow <laughs> corporate world. And I just remember everything just went so cold at that moment. And there was real at the end of it, oh, that's all right. Don't call us. We'll call you. Yeah. <laughs> just, just keep that just keep that in the book uh, where it gets pretty good feedback. I thought you were gonna then say, and now they're my best client. <laughs> no, no, they're not it didn't end it didn't end well. And probably that's the only, the only sort of meeting in the last four or five years where I've gone into and I thought that was a real lead balloon. <laughs> <laughs> but that led us in, that story about it was leading us into the idea about how to recognise an ogre, which is this idea that it pops up whenever we're doing something outside our comfort zone, effectively. Anything that we kind of just stretches us outside, that's when it kind of pops up and says, hey, you know, you're shit or be careful. And for me, coming from an arts background, I've seen this a lot when people go to do something, maybe haven't come from that similar space, where they go do something uh, creative or anything which could be considered artistic or something along those lines, might be there's a music, dance, singing, etc. That's when that voice starts to go into overdrive. And you, you know, as mm-hmm. kids, you know, most people, not most people, many of our listeners will have children or have had young children, or you were a young child. So you'll remember this. You know, when we're kids, we, we don't worry about what people think when we go to paint and draw and sing. But as we get older, yeah. especially in the Western world as grown-up adults in Australia or the UK or many other countries. We only sing when we're alone in the shower. We only dance when we're drunk at someone's wedding, maybe once a year. And as for doing anything, maybe a little bit more creative, art, music, theatre, whatever that may be, go to hell. That's never going to happen (laughs) because we're worried what people may think. Yeah. And also I was thinking that, you know, with my head very much in that thing about curiosity and asking questions, it also pops up when you think you have a question to ask, you know, when you're in those groups and forums and you think, I've got a question, but it's going to sound daft if I say this out loud. That is the ogre again talking to you. Even the idea of raising a question can make the ogre pop up and start saying its stuff. Which is sort of like the antithesis, if not sure if that's the right word, the opposite of curiosity because the very heart of being uh, curious and being a good occupational philosopher is you ask as many questions as you can. It's that thirst for knowledge that you keep asking, your mind keeps expanding and you you keep opening. And the the moment you stop asking questions, yeah, the moment is when your curiosity starts to sort of shrivel up. And you know when you're being led into that because uh, someone will often say at the front of that group, hey, there's no such thing as a daft question, which immediately makes my ogre go into overdrive and go, yes, there is, and I'm going to ask it. Except you, dickhead, don't don't ask it. And then everyone in the room, they go, there's no question. So (laughs) it's sort of like when you you do a corporate brainstorm and they'll say, hey, guys, there's no such thing as a bad idea. And, look, I'm all into that, but deep inside you, you go, oh, hang on. I don't want to be the one that does have the bad idea. Oh, yeah. yeah. No, I mean, you know, bicycle with a fish for a saddle. That was a bad idea. We're talking around when that ogre kicks in 
and anything when we go to do something that takes us out of that comfort zone. Where do you think it starts? Well, as you were saying that, it was just reminding me of the classic joke. I think there's a class of kids drawing pictures or the, the teacher says, okay, I want you to draw a picture of, uh, of God. And so they all start drawing this picture. And no, I've forgotten that one. Sorry, we can edit that later. It's a better story. As you were saying, I was just thinking about my daughter came up to me the other day and joyfully and gleefully opened a page, a couple of pages in the book that she'd been drawing a cartoon story in. And she'd sketched out every frame by frame and it was called Spider Goat. So it was just completely off the wall, creative in terms of uh, storyline, but just the joy of just saying, hey, look, Dad, look what I've drawn. And I said, that's fantastic. And just in that encouragement, but just no fear whatsoever, just draws a story about spider goat. And I think that's wonderful. When do we stop drawing spider goat stories? Here's the thing. As kids, we're all born creative. And my view is, We eat, we walk, we talk, and we create. However, as the grown-up adults we are, that changes. So do you have you got a moment where that space from maybe curious, creative, imaginative philosopher shifts into the more normal, boring adults that a lot of us turn out to be? Well, I suppose a lot of it forms in school, doesn't it, for many of us? I think we start to have that idea fairly early on you know you, you're good at this invert you know people say oh you're really good at that or hey john great at maths and you're good at doing the history but ah, the art don't go that way that's not for you so i i had that i had that you're okay but you'll never be particularly talented at it so i think it forms pretty early then it's funny i heard someone speaking on the radio you know how they'll often say mm. oh that child is shy and mm. this lady a psychologist and she said no kids are shy kids only become shy when they hear it from their parents repeatedly say oh they're shy kids yeah. don't understand shy maybe yeah. wanting to say something to that stranger at that time your mum and dad will say oh don't worry about them they're really shy which imprints that on your mind yeah there's people use labels quite quickly because it helps people make sense of the world, don't they? They label stuff, they categorize stuff, and and we do that with each other and kids as well. Yeah, you're good at that, you're not so good at that. Or Tom's the smart academic one, and Jane, she's more the dancer. She's all performing arts and stuff, and you get it's that. One. Yeah. And it does. It starts to close people off to opportunities, I think. As kids. Whereas for me, that creative, uncreative just doesn't exist. We all are drawn to different things and interests, but – the ability for us to make connections in an unusual way or the connect the dots in an unusual way, which for me, what creativity is, we're all, we're all good at that. We can all connect dots in different ways and we all should be good at it. But I've done, and you laughed when I said this, like it was a boast, but I imagine, no, I imagine, I would say I've delivered about 1,300 events over the last 20 years and that's on an average of explaining this to you because you yeah i couldn't work out the maths but that that's maybe 70 events a year so that's like once two a week over 18 19 years that that's pretty easy a lot of these events have been doing something creative so you might be creating something you haven't before we might getting people um painting we might get people prototyping something so all things with coming up with new ideas and doing something for most is out of our comfort zone And most people 
will remember, I'd say 95% of the people will remember a crappy comment from a teacher at school and the teacher said something to them like, oh, your drawing doesn't look like a car or a horse or whatever it is. And from that moment on, they go, oh, I'm crap at creativity, which is ridiculous because drawing something realistically is a very logical thing to do, whereas the creativity is putting it wherever you like. But from that moment on, we tell ourselves it's really a sort of you know, backbreaking story around I don't have a, you know, I'm not creative and that sort of holds you off from other great possibilities in your life. I presume that's the ogre, isn't it? The ogre starts to get fed by yeah. all of this. Yeah, and that's, for me, that's when people can remember it. It's only a little comment. They can remember it like it was yesterday. And for me, that's that ogre-defining moment in around that time when you're so unsure of yourself as well, when you're maybe that sort of 11 to 12, 13, mm. and you get that comment and all of a sudden, bang, you decide, okay, I'm, I will just do the non-creative subjects or I'll put leave all that joyous self-expression behind me. Yeah, I've suddenly got an image of an ogre being fed with all this, these words that come his way, getting bigger and bigger and bigger. It's sort of fed with your, your negative self-thoughts and negative beliefs around what you're capable of. And is it a modern-day problem then? Is this, uh, how do you see this? Is this something, is, have, have people always wrestled with this? Is this just the human condition? Do you think? That's a very deep philosophical question, John. I have gone a bit philosophical quite early there. <laughs> you, you went hard early. Well, you've set a good standard for the show. <laughs> I've just drawn and a few I, people in and went, hey, maybe they're not just a couple of idiots. Yeah. <laughs> well, well, that'd be wrong. But we've yet to prove ourselves. I, I think it is a modern day problem based on, I mean, you've done a lot of travel like myself and every Indigenous culture around the world, they sing, they dance, they record their stories visually and they've been doing this since the beginning of time. So I would say there's no ogre problems and given at the, you know, that it's ingrained in every culture everywhere, I'd say it's part of our human condition to create and express ourselves. Uh, what the stuff going back to the school stuff for a minute, Simon? You, the that creativity as well is is sometimes the school doesn't really give it as much weight as it does academic subjects as well. Is there, there's something there as well? And look, that's maybe another episode uh, all in itself where we would all get yeah. up on our soapbox and rant about this. Hey, uh, people who yeah. value creativity, curiosity, imagination, all those wonderful things which will help us, you know, thrive today and tomorrow. Yeah, as we know, the first things we generally get cut at schools when budget is gone is, Mm -hmm. you know, the arts and those creative things. And also a lot of primary school teachers come through with their own ogres, not knocking any teachers by any means, but uh, no reflecting on my own kids, like the sort of the energy they might give to the arts or music or theatre can be really low, whereas the sports stuff is really high. So sports, super important, absolutely. But a lot of teachers come through with also this, they don't have their own sort of joy in creativity. So they'll, you know, play a pretty bland old game. Yeah, yeah. Well, as you say, I think there's a huge whole episode in that. And if people want to start anywhere, uh, they do do as well to watch the Ken Robinson, Sir Ken Robinson. There's a great TED Talk, which is all about his uh, thoughts on how creativity gets killed in schools and what he thinks the answer may be. 
Hey, Simon, one of the things that philosophers were very good at, as well as asking lots of questions, were to conduct thought experiments. These were things that allowed them to explore ideas or what if or scenarios. And I thought it'd be great if we had some thought experiments of our own in every show. Okay, so this week's thought experiment is a would you rather question. And this is a work-based would you rather question, John. So mm-hmm. it goes something like this. Would you rather be, a, let's say you're a brilliant scientist, imagine that. Mm-hmm. Would you rather produce the best piece of work ever, groundbreaking, you know, it will, no one's ever thought of it before, your brain's on fire, it's world's best practice, but your university won't publish it for some technical reason, so it'll never, ever be heard of, it's buried, or would you rather produce uh, maybe just a quite crappy piece of work but it gets published and you become famous and well-known for that quite crappy bit of work. In my heart, I know it's quite crappy, but yeah, everybody else thinks it's quite good. So I get famous for it, but I don't. I know inside. Or maybe you're like that guy who got filmed crying in a restaurant when his girlfriend broke up with him. He became famous crying internet guy. Wasn't his best work <laughs> because he was a professional actor, but that never got... Uh, his, his acting work never made him famous. <laughs> okay, so the, let's take the famous, uh, the brilliant work piece. So that's like I've discovered wormholes in space and I've proved that time travel is possible and I've cracked it with this yeah. piece of work, but no one knows about it. And it's not allowed to be published, let's say. Okay. Or I've worked out what makes wheels squeak on a trolley in a supermarket and that's made me famous. Yeah. And that's what you'll always be known for. What would you rather? (laughs) I think I'd rather just go around cryptically saying, I've done something brilliant, but you'll never know. (laughs) Which, you know, frankly could be true. I've not just not told you, Simon. I know all about time travel. (laughs) (laughs) Now, my mind goes to an English pub you know, these sort of little, little woody ones and the low ceilings and the guy sitting in the corner. I've done something brilliant. Yeah, absolutely. So how about you, Simon? Have you done something brilliant that you just no one knows about? No. <laughs> <laughs> let's, let's be honest. <laughs> I uh, I, um, I I share everything. So. <laughs> You've shared every crappy piece of work. I've shared everything, with a lot of it being crappy. <laughs> I based on that, I think I'd be wheel squeak man. So <laughs> <laughs> supermarket trolley squeak man. <laughs> I don't mind. Hey, there you go, supermarket trolley squeak man. Yeah, but you know, it's not his best work. I go, yeah, but look at the size of my pool. I'm not worried about that. (laughs) Dick. John, what does this ogre turn into? Well, I think it's fear, isn't it? As this ogre gets fed, you know, from your own thoughts, other people's comments, it's feeding this ogre, which, yeah, just becomes... uh, a sense of fear, a fear of, we said, a fear of failure, a fear of looking stupid, a fear of being ostracized, you know, or you don't fit in, a fear that you won't fit in if you do this thing. So, yeah, it kind of manifests itself as fundamentally fear, but a fear of lots of different things. 
And it depends what, what's most important to you at that moment, isn't it? I hadn't probably thought of it like that, but it goes to that sort of that fear of fitting in as well. Mm. It might put a lid on your more creative, curious, imaginative habits as well, especially when you're at school, when you everything is around about fitting in. You often yeah. hear people, you know, hero worship now because they're actors or musicians or artists or people have gone on to do these amazing, outstanding sort of creative things in their life. And when they're at school, they got really hammered for not fitting in and being a little bit left of centre and being different and, you know, liking different things. So that, that's a really good point around that fear, especially when we're younger. And I guess when we get to work as well, we, we want to fit in also. Yeah. So you can so easily hide that the little bit of creativity you might have hung on to from school and you get to work and that's the last place you want to make a mistake or put your neck out. You've got to be prepared to stand apart from others to really ask those questions, to be creative, et cetera. And, yeah, I think a big thing about how as social animals, quite tribal, and so the need to fit into teams, into communities, friend groups, work, you know, organizations, all of that. Yeah, huge, I think, huge. I think one of the good things I always think about, because I studied fine arts and did a fine arts and an education degree with that as well, one of the great things that arts taught me is that you don't have a fear of failure because when you, I specialise in painting and ceramics and sculpture, but when you're painting, you're constantly making mistakes and that's how you learn. Like you try and mix something and your pile of stuff on the floor that didn't work for that one beautiful piece that you have, which then sells and gets you in a gallery or whatever that may be, the lead up to that is riddled with mistakes. But those mm. mistakes, you don't fear them because that's just part and parcel of creating great things and being creative. And so I would put that fear of making a mistake is the biggest handbrake on creativity I know. Yeah. Because if you worry what it will look like or what it will sound like or what people think or say, that fear will will never let you go where you need to go and be that creative beast that we were all born to be. When I wrote my book, the number one thing I put at the beginning of your my innovation framework is dealing with that ogre, which is that crappy, shitty voice, which tells you what you can and can't do. And if you want to have that culture of creativity, which pretty much every study around the world at the moment says is the number one skill to thrive in the modern workplace, you need to deal with that mindset or that inner voice saying, look, you can't, you look stupid, you look foolish. There is a certain courage that's needed to do that. Yeah, absolutely. And look, Vincent van Gogh, said, if you hear a voice within you saying you cannot paint, by all means paint, and that voice will be silenced. So it's that bravery just to go and continue doing that thing, which you worried what what people will say. And the great thing is the moment you do something and you realise, well, that didn't kill me, all of a sudden you go, oh, I might try it again. And your confidence grows and then you practise and you get a bit more brave, you practise a bit more. And all of a sudden... People think you're a, you know, you're that creative genius, which has come from practice and bravery, but bravery to get you started. Once your confidence and skill start to grow in any creative field, you build on that confidence all the time. It's like if maybe you haven't run for 20 years, which happens to a lot of middle-aged men as they get on in their life. Oh, yeah. 
whatever sport you had when you were younger and you think, all right, I just might go back on the bike and the first time you're a little wobbly and you look a bit blubbery in your tight lycra clothes, <laughs> you're brave and you, you kick on and then after a few weeks things start to flow as they should. Now, John, I think it's a good time to talk around how we can tackle our ogres because it's all that creative or let's say our ogre, that thing which is holding us back, being the most creative, curious, imaginative, occupational philosopher we can be. And look, given that we're a not-so-serious business podcast, let's go into that space first. If you're at work, how do we tackle our work ogres to hold us back? Well, I think that the first place I'd start would be taking the leaf from some of the things you talk about in your book, which is about changing the way we think about failing, as we might put it, inverted commas, air quotes or whatever, and change that mindset to seeing it as experimentation, something that we do, we try it, we test it, doesn't quite work the way we want it. So we then adapt the way we do something and we try again. And so we have this idea first of a mindset of experimentation, I think is really important. Yeah, so we move from hashtag fail fast to hashtag experiment quickly. That's, yeah, that's it. And I think that's a really important. So there's the mindset and then there's the actual doing it, I think, which is really important. So you kind of then have to actually commit to that and say, okay, well, we're going to try different things to see if we can get a different result. And one of the things at the minute, which is, is massive across the work that we do with clients that we're working with, is they're all trying to become agile. You've probably heard this as well, and a lot of people listening in will be working in organizations that are trying to become agile organizations. They're trying to put in place agile HR practices, or they're trying to put in place agile performance management. And the idea of agile is about rapid change. It is about experimenting quickly, learning testing, moving on, changing, evolving, etc. So, you know, the idea of having that mindset of experimentation and then actually doing it is a really good way, I think, to bring it to life, but also to start to do things in an agile way. And that's with rapidly changing work, pace of change, technological change and complex work now, ever more the norm. Coming agile is just, it is definitely the way to go. Let's try take this down to its most simple level. What's a super easy experiment if we're going to be agile? And look, a lot of people hear agile and roll their eyes. So um, I think <laughs> we need to break this down to its most basic thing. What, what's an agile experiment you could run at work as an example? Well, I think a really neat one is around meetings. The idea that meetings have to be run a certain way and they have to have powerpoints that are shared by everybody and a particular agenda and so one of the first things you could do is just just mix that up and say what if we had meetings whereby powerpoint was banned <gasps> i know i suspect there's a sharp intake of breath across the nation as i say something like that but you you ban powerpoint for a week and see how that goes and see how people then adapt and experiment with different ways of presenting their ideas, their information, their thoughts or whatever, and see what happens. But see what happens. But yeah, ban PowerPoint, just go a different way. And here's the thing at the end. If you look at it as an experiment, you can go, did that work? Were people, were our meetings more effective? Do people enjoy them more? Was there more engagement in them, etc.? And the good thing is you've done over a week. If 
the answer is, yeah, that was great. You can course correct, continue, iterate. If it wasn't, you go, no worries. We've only, it's only been a week. So that's the change I would think in that sort of agile experimentation phase. So it's short and sharp and look at what you've got because you've got some data. And one of the questions when I speak, especially to a government audience, if it's like a big public forum or something, people will ask at the end, what do I do if I'm always putting ideas forward, but my boss shuts them down? And so my answer, you know, hard to say, you know, in a few minutes, but is sort of what we discussed, just run some experiments with your team, look at the things you can control. And then you're going to have some data and you can present that data forward. So that's one way to do it. And the other thing is, as soon as it gets out, people say, hey, there, something's going on over there. I'm not sure what it is, but I like the look of it. So you start that little bit of your little mini revolution around the way you experiment and operate. And the great thing is when you experiment, you also become more productive. And I've never met any audience that says, we are not interested in being more productive. Now, personal level, John, here's something which I think is a really good one to do. And again, I use this when I work with people because, as you know, and part of this show is undoing this, I'm not creative, I'm not curious, I'm not imaginative, That undoing that mindset. However, we also know that so many people have it. The thing is they just don't realise they've got a creative cat sitting inside. So one of the exercises I run is getting people to write down their bucket list. Now, when you write, and this is, you know, the one before you die, you're going to retire and do all these cool things. Then you look at the bucket list and you look at that and generally everything on that is something out of your comfort zone, something a little unusual, something different, something, you know, creative where you have to connect the dots in different ways. It might be you know, moving to France and I'm going to do up an old barn or I might run an Airbnb or I might uh, start learning quilting or another language or something like that. So if you look down that, everything on that is creative. So it shows in your heart you've got a creative, inspirational, imaginative soul. No one ever puts, when I retire, I'm going to learn matchstick counting. I'm going to memorise my tax return or trawl the white pages for those of us who can remember <laughs> a phone. Yeah, well, it could be household tasks. I'm going to creosote the fence when I retire. But, yeah. Yeah, because we want to do something. Interesting. So on that, start your bucket list early. Have a look at it and think, what's one of those things which I can start early? The great thing is the moment you do something, it triggers off different ideas in your mind. Your mind starts to open up new neural pathways. We start to think about things a bit differently. Your mind goes into overdrive and then you can take that mindset into work. Now, each and every week, we will also introduce a quote because as a good occupational philosopher, pondering quotes and, you know, wise sayings is an important part of your role and getting really curious about what people say and what they mean and spending a bit more time to delve into your imagination. So this week, John, I have a quote for you and I need you to tell me is this quote true or not? When I say true or not, it's said by a, a well-known person. And this quote is, I don't do drugs, I am drugs. <laughs> Something easy to start with. Am I allowed to say names out loud if I want to talk Yeah, about you, you, can, you can say some names out loud. I'm not quite sure what the rule is. You can, yeah. let's say you can ask three questions. Okay, so... Uh, <laughs> 
Well, well, I'm, I'm going two ways at the minute as to whether it's possibly true. It could be true, and I'm thinking in the field of sports <laughs> or or, um, or rock music. So I kind of have, you know, I'm split. I'm torn between someone like I don't, someone like uh, Lance Armstrong or or. Um, Okay, to you. I don't do drugs. I have drugs. Is he on the list? Or um, Keith Richards, something like that. You know, sort of thing he might have said in passing at some point. It sounds true, but I'm I'm not sure the context. So I'm going to go true. Well, John, you are correct. This is true. And this is what the artist Salvador Dali said Ah. when someone said, do you do drugs? And he said, Mm. I don't do drugs. I am drugs. Mm. Yeah, okay. Do you think he was on them at the time or not? I think absolutely, yeah. Did he ever have anything that made him see melted watches everywhere? Yeah, well, that's what I explain what what his style of uh, art is. Surrealism, I say, well, just think of it like this. He used to take a load of acid and then paint what he saw in his dreams. So that's my explanation for surrealism and why I'm no longer a teacher. So it wasn't just the view out the window? No, it wasn't. Well, he has, you should see his window. And he has a pool shaped like a penis at his house. (laughs) Having been there, which is also pretty cool. (laughs) Okay. <laughs> I'm just, just, I'm just trying to think of his morning exercise regime. Just how that I can't work out how how he how he does lengths. I've got well, he, the lengths are good, and a little bit of space to turn around. <laughs> it's got, it's got, got a turning space, like a spa bath on each end. No, two spa baths on end. It's exactly what it looks like. so simon it's all well and good us talking about ogres and what they look like and how they talk to us how about yourself you must have some ogres of your own we all have them what's uh, what's your own stories john the the worst situation i've had with my ogre and look i don't have an ogre around uh let's say you know painting drawing creativity because i've done that since day one which lots of people might but when I wrote my book which I know we've spoken about before John (laughs) I don't uh, think you've ever mentioned it (laughs) but our book writing mentor and if I if ever going to write a book absolutely work with a mentor for this but our book writing mentor said the moment you start to write this book he said there'll be a voice in your head saying who are you to write the book and who's going to listen to you and, you know, what right do you have to try and be seen as an expert, et cetera? And he said, even though you're writing the book because you're sitting on a mountain of value and you've got a lot to say in your field, and I'm just listening going, yeah, blah, 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 move on, move on. And the, the moment he did it, it just went, it was, it went into rage, if that's the right thing. It just went <laughs> on and on and on. And it, I don't know, debilitating is not the right word, but it just, it was intense the whole time. And then... Once you've put it through and you also think, well, other people are going to be reading this who know more than me. What if they look at it and go, that's not right or that's like, oh, that's not right. And so it it went went crazy. It went crazy with the book and even up to the launch and, you know, you've got 150 people at your launch and it's selling and even then still it kicks onto that whole process. 
Yeah, I can imagine some scary moments there. As you said that, actually, Simon, it was making me think of my own ogres as well, actually, which was there's be a professional one and a personal one. The professional one would be leading off what you said, which is if I'm setting up a webinar or a keynote or some presentation to clients or whatever or to people who are just listening into what I think I should be sharing. And that always comes up. What if there's people in the audience that know more than me and who am I to offer this up? How dare I? <laughs> they they know more about this than me. And that, yeah, that always crops up. And then personally, we had a big thing the year before, which was at the Brighton Fringe Festival. Now, I just want to make a note here. The Brighton Fringe Festival is huge. Second only in the UK, I would say, to the Edinburgh Fringe Festival. So when you're performing at the Brighton Fringe Festival, this is not a bloke in a paddock with a microphone with a few cows and the odd uh, festival person. (laughs) You you didn't see the show. Yeah, this is a thing. This is a big thing. So we had uh, Random Acts of Nonsense, which is a thing that is – that came out of our family, sort of with my wife, Leslie, and our kids, which was about random acts of nonsense. It was all about fun and creating smiles and laughter and memories. And we put a show together, a family show for families, and we decided to put it on at the Fringe. And so we had a venue and we had tickets and we sold tickets. And obviously most of those tickets were sold to (laughs) friends and family. But we had 100 people in the audience most of whom we knew certainly for some of the shows and i was there as a 50 year old man doing this family show you know kids were getting a lot of fun out of it so found myself at one point shouting out knickers at the top of my voice (laughs) so there was a big thing there about the ogre about putting yourself out out there in front of people that you knew which i think was really interesting as well that that brought a different dimension to it and it always goes back to that fear. And it's funny that one you said around the, um, or we both said about, you know, people might know more than us. And I think the world would be a terrible place if people didn't know more than us. You know what I mean? And I heard a quote, I don't know who to attribute it to, but it said, if you're the smartest person in the room, you're in the wrong room, meaning you're <laughs> always, you always need to be with people who know more than you or who bring in more than you do and you can't expect to know everything. And that's good. That's okay. That's part of – but you bring your unique insight because you're, you're, we're all different cats, aren't we? Like you can't expect to know everything on everything, but bring what you do know to the table and see what happens. Well, and I think, uh, just as you were saying that, Simon, the other thing, and it goes to the heart of this show, really, what we're trying to talk about, which is you might sometimes come with an insight that they just haven't seen. They just don't have. And it might just be the smallest of things that fits into their large, boundless knowledge they have around a particular topic. And you just slide something in there that gives them something new for them to consider. And the other one is, or you just come with a question. You just come with a question they haven't asked because they are so specialist and they are so on top of their topic sometimes that shuts them off to questions and the good old fresh pair of eyes the the slight outsider coming in with less knowledge sometimes can ask the killer question and i think that's a really important thing to remember as well so in summary suck it up and get stuck in (laughs) get stuck in absolutely yeah shout knickers at the top of your voice hey simon that's the end of episode one what do you think? Well, I think it's pretty exciting, John, to get here. It's been quite a momentous, well, it feels momentous for us, doesn't it? 
Indeed. And what do we want people to do now, having maybe heard this first episode? Well, first thing I think would be good is you subscribe to our show. You can Mm -hmm. then rate us on iTunes or Spotify or any of the other platforms where you're listening. And most importantly, tell your friends. Tell your friends indeed. And five stars, please, on the rating. Only. And also visit the website, occupationalphilosophers.com. It's quite a long title, but it's a really good one. And uh, when you get there, you can download the guide, the Ogre Tackling Guide. So you can get that free to download. So please go and grab that. And on the next show, we will have our very first guest. And not just any guest, but a wonderfully talented and delightful guest. And then um, I think join us every fortnight, Simon, wouldn't you say? Yeah, I'll be looking forward to it. (laughs) Me too. Now, this probably means, is your, is your mum going to tune in, John, or has she given you any feedback she, yet? <laughs> she's definitely one of our core listeners, definitely, for sure. I saw she it. really likes it. Good. Well, that's what mums are meant to do, so. Although she did say she preferred your voice to mine, which yeah. was a bit of a cold, bit of a damn. Hair cold. Hair cold.